Thank you, Peter. We're continuing in the book of Exodus here and uh, move it along. So Exodus has, I think, 40 chapters. So we're getting to the end of chapter 24 today um, and we'll see how we progress. So um, this is a pretty significant chapter or section in the book of Exodus. And so we'll see as we go along why, but um, I encourage you to to be attentive to God's word today. And let's pray actually for God's help in that. Our Father, we need your help. We ask that the Spirit would give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are soft, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, taught where we need to be taught, comforted where we need to be comforted you would do your work through your word in us. Help me to speak in a way that is faithful and accurate to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids are funny sometimes when it comes to their sense of self-confidence. I don't know if you've ever seen this, uh, but sometimes you'll have a kid who doesn't feel confident to enter a room with five other kids. It's just terrifying to them, right? Or, or you can have a, a, a kid who, who suddenly loses all confidence that they have the ability to walk another step, right? Like they, they just can't do it. It's impossible to walk another step. They, they lose that sense of confidence. Other times, though, it's flipped, right? And they have this overabundance of confidence. They think they can throw together a recipe from scratch and, and make some gourmet muffins, and somehow they have all the knowledge and skills needed to do that. Or they'll look at you and be like, I bet you a hundred thousand million dollars that I can beat you to the front door in a race. And, and you're like, where did you get that idea? That, that, that you're, that fa- you're three years old, and you think this is strange, right? They have this overabundance of confidence. And this kind of overconfidence is a bit like what we see today in the book of Exodus from the children of Israel. They enter into an agreement with God and say, okay, let's, let's agree. In this agreement, God has obligations and they have obligations. And in their overconfidence, they think that they can keep their end of the agreement. But it's not just little kids and the Israelites that are overconfident. It's often you and I. We tend to be overconfident when it comes to our ability to be good enough. We overestimate our ability to live according to God's commands. We, 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 we blow, o- overestimate our, our ability to withstand temptation. What we need and what this text gives us is a wake-up call that gives us a realistic view of ourselves and of our desperate need for Jesus. So let's dig into this text. What we have in this section is a kind of covenant ratification or inauguration ceremony. Remember, a covenant, those are some big words, right? But, but a covenant is an essentially a, an agreement, a binding, legal, personal 
agreement, promise, commitment between two parties. So God was enter into, entering into an agreement with the Israelites. He was committing himself to a relationship with them, a relationship that would involve promises and pledges and commitment. And this isn't the first time we've seen a commitment in Scripture or a covenant in Scripture, and it won't be the last, right? We saw a covenant with Noah back in Genesis. We see a covenant with Abraham that's instituted in Genesis 12 and then again in 15. We see a covenant eventually with David, and then finally we end up seeing the new covenant, right? All of these agreements, promises, covenants were, were, were common in Scripture. It was, it was a way that God related to His people. And they were not uncommon in ancient times either. Often, especially between a king and his subjects, they would enter into a covenant, and the king would, would make these guidelines and, 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 and outline an agreement that his subjects would have to live by. And that's some of what we see here, is a king, namely the living God, making a covenant with his people. Perhaps the best parallel in our day to a covenant might be marriage, and we even talk about a marriage covenant at times, right? It's a solemn, binding, deeply personal, legal agreement and promise between two people, right? Similar to what we're seeing here. And here in Exodus... The living God, Yahweh, has chosen Israel. He has brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He has led them to Mount Sinai through the desert, and He has given them His law, and now they are kind of making it official. God is sealing His relationship with them as His people. That's the point of all this. God having a relationship with His people, that's the point of a covenant. It's showing how can people live in relationship with God. That's the question, and that's the point of a covenant. How can we live in relationship with God? And, and that should get our attention, right? Because that's a big question. Okay, if there's a God, how can I live in relationship with Him? How can I relate to Him, in other words? So, as we walk through this passage, keep that in mind, that the point of all of this is headed towards how can I live in a relationship with God? How can I relate to Him? He exists, how can I relate to Him? And this covenant and all that surrounds it in this, in this section is going to help us think through that, okay? So we're going to look at four points. Number one, covenant conditions. Number two, covenant commitments. Number three, covenant consequences. And number four, covenant communion. So lots of C's today. Number one, covenant conditions. What are conditions in a covenant? Uh, covenant conditions are, are kind of, here are the stipulations, the conditions that you need to keep in this agreement. Within this agreement, there are obligations that you have, right? So what are the obligations on behalf of Israel? What were the things Israel needed to do in order to keep this covenant and live in relationship with God? And in a sense, that's what God's been laying out over the last three chapters, right? The last three chapters since chapter 20 has been a lot of law, okay? Remember the Ten Commandments, chapter 20, and then chapters 20 through 23 were all of these different commands, case law, and so forth, right? Showing the Israelites, here's how you're to live as my people. And those were all part of this covenant 
these covenant conditions. If you're going to live in relationship with me, here's how you need to live, right? Here in chapter 23, the last half of the chapter that we're looking at here, God's simply taking this, all of these commands, and applying it to the future. And he's saying, listen, I've given you all these commands, and the conditions of the covenant are, if you're going to live in relationship with me, when you get to the promised land, you've got to obey all these commands. That's what he's saying here. Look, look at verses 20 through 22. This is chapter 23, verse 20. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. And then verse 22, Be care- but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Do you see the call to obedience? So he's saying, in order to keep my covenant and live in relationship with me, when you get to the promised land, you've got to keep obeying me. All the laws that I've given, you're to obey. There's a mysterious figure in, in this passage as well, you might have noticed. This angel Literally, the word means messenger, right? Uh, this angel is, is a bit mysterious, right? Clearly, uh, an angel represents God as a messenger for God. But there are certain phrases in here that sound like this angel might actually be God himself, right? You see this angel either for pardoning or forgiving sin or not, right? That's a, that's a divine uh, quality or prerogative. And then you even see this phrase, my name is in him, right? And then we're to obey his voice. In a sense, it sounds like this might actually be God himself in some way. And some would say this, this is actually speaking another term, another instance of kind of the angel of the Lord, this perhaps even a pre-incarnate Christ, right? Before he came in the flesh, we see him, perhaps this is an appearance of him, where he is representing God on earth. We don't know for sure. It's interesting, but this angel is, is a rather mysterious figure. But the emphasis through the rest of the, so, so those first couple of verses there emphasize this call to obedience. If you're going to keep my covenant when you get to the promised land, you obey my words. You obey the words that come through this angel messenger of mine. And then through the rest of the passage, he zeroes in on specific commands, okay? And those specific command that he really emphasizes is that of prohibiting idolatry. So when you get to the promised land, in order to keep my covenant and live in relationship with me, you must keep the command to not worship other gods before me. Look at verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Don't worship like them. And then verses 32 to 33, you see the same thing emphasized. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Again, we're reminded how how core, how primary, foundational worship is, right? So of all the commands in order to keep the covenant, the, the one that's focused on here is worship. Why? Because as we've seen, it's, it's from what, what or whom we worship that the, all of the rest of our life and all of the rest of our obedience flows. 
And so the emphasis again is on worship and the danger of idolatry. And there's a reason that this danger of idolatry is pointed out even besides the primacy of worship. It's the danger that the Israelites would be facing as they entered the promised land. Think about the promised land for a second. Israel comes into the promised land and you know, at this point we're looking forward to that. And, and what God's saying is, as you come into the promised land, I'm going to drive out these other nations. The, these are nations that have been sinning against God, willfully rejecting Him, pursuing idolatry and immorality and sin and injustice for centuries. And as He says in Genesis, their wrath is being stored up. And when the Israelites come into the land, it's God judging those nations through Israel. And so those nations are, dri- are driven out right? They're defeated by Israel, but one of the things God says in this passage is that that will be gradual. He says, I'm going to do it gradually. The people will be driven out gradually. Why? So that you just don't end up with this land that you don't have enough people to inhabit, and then the land gets kind of out of control, and the wild animals get out of control. No, I'm going to do it gradually for you. But here's the thing. If, if it's done gradually, then that means what? means the Israelites and the Canaanites are going to kind of live side by side for a little bit. There's going to be some interaction. There's going to be some overlap. Okay, well, what happens with the overlap? The danger with the overlap is that the Israelites look at the Canaanites and say, well, they have some cool gods. I think I want to try worshiping them, right? That's the danger here. And particularly, if you think about the Israelites' background, they're sitting in a place where they have never farmed before. Israel has, since Abraham, they've always been nomadic shepherd people, right? So they tend flocks and, 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 and various livestock, but they didn't farm the land. And so here they are now, eventually they will be in the land. That's what we're looking forward to here. When they're in the land and they're ready to start farming the land. Well, guess what? They don't know what they're doing. Where do they learn what to do? Well, in part, perhaps, from the Canaanites that are kind of still there, left over, and, and not driven out completely yet, right? And so maybe they learn farming practices, but maybe they also learn a way of worshiping, right? You see, part of the Canaanite worship at the core was uh, their gods and goddesses were fertility gods and goddesses. They were all gods and goddesses made and designed for, for, for crops, Right? Listen, if you're going to have good crops, you need to till the soil and plant the seeds like this. Oh, and you need to worship this God in this way. That was the temptation for the Israelites. And so God is saying, do not go worship their gods. Do not worship the way they worship their gods. There is a danger there. If you are going to keep the conditions of the covenant and live in relationship with me, You cannot worship their gods. You cannot go astray into their ways. Here's the point I just want us to get here. The way we view and treat God, the way we respond to His words, impacts our relationship with Him. You cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot have a healthy relationship with God if you put Him in second place. You cannot have a healthy relationship with God if you ignore His commands. To live in covenant relationship with God, there are conditions. So, that's number one, covenant conditions. Number two, covenant commitment. 
Look with me at chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will do. So this, at some point, this is one of Moses' trips down the mountain. He comes down the mountain. Chapters really 20 through 23, he kind of delivers it to them. This is all that God tells you to do. Perhaps there's even more than what we have recorded here. And imagine hearing those words. You're the people of Israel. All of these callings, these commands, these rules for how to live according to God's design as God's people in relationship with him. All of these conditions for the covenant. How do you respond at that point? You, you probably don't want to respond by saying, no, I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't want to do that. No, no, no. You, you, you want to live in covenant relationship with God. Hopefully you even see the goodness of God's commands and, and of living in relationship with him. But at the same time, the response that the Israelites give is a little concerning, isn't it? Look again at verse 3 there. What, what do they say? All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And in verse 7, you see pretty similar. Then, they, then, then he took, this is Moses. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. I think this is where we get into the overconfidence, isn't it? Yeah, we'll do all of it. We will be obedient. I promise you. I think what takes us back a little bit is our knowledge of Israel's history, right? Like, if you've read your Bible, you know that it's, it's actually the rarer times are the times when they actually did obey. <laughs> the default ended up being disobedience and idolatry in Israel's, in Israel's history. In fact, we're going to, a couple chapters later from this, we're going to see them turning into idolatry almost right away. Or you think of just a few decades later, and you have the description of the judges where it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this promise, we will do all that the Lord has spoken, we will obey. It rings rather hollow. Listen to a couple of passages from 2 Kings 17. These are just giving a summary of the way the people of Israel lived, where this ended up. So you got this promise back in Exodus, ratification of the covenant, and then we're going to get kind of the end of the story where they're sent into exile. And you see how different their commitments are than how different that is than what actually took place, how they actually lived. 2 Kings 17, starting verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs of the kings that Israel had practiced. 
And then a few verses later in chapter 17, verse 13, it continues, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. They did the very things God said not to do. Their commitments were commitments they couldn't keep. And this whole covenant ends up being a train wreck. They were far more weak and sinful than they realized. And friends, this is true for us too. We are far more sinful than we realize. We are far more susceptible to temptation than we think. We are far weaker than we imagine. On our own, we are going to continually manufacture new idols and God replacements. We are continually going to try to rule our lives instead of obeying God's commands. And I'm convinced that one of God's big picture, big purposes with much of the Old Testament is to help us see that man can't do it. Just read the Old Testament and you should be convinced, oh, we're actually not good. Oh, yeah, we don't have the ability to save ourselves. Oh, we can't keep that covenant. Like, you don't have to go very far, right? And, and Israel had all of these privileges. They had all this set up, all of these blessings to have God's presence and His temple and sacrifices and, and law and revelation and prophets and so forth. And, and they had it all. And they still couldn't do it. Why not? Because we are far more weak and sinful than we realize. We can commit and promise and say all we want, but on our own, we will fail. We do not have the strength in ourselves. We are far more sinful than we realize. So that's number two, covenant commitments. Uh, th there's not a lot of good news yet, is there, huh? We have covenant conditions, which are high standards, right? to obey and worship God alone. And we have covenant commitments where we think we can do it and we are utterly disillusioned and self-deceived, right? Number three, covenant consequences. It's going to start off with more bad news, but here we go. In, in chapter 24, verses 4 through 8, we end up with a bunch of blood. I don't know if you noticed that. It's kind of like a set of a horror film or something, but you have all this blood everywhere, right? They sacrifice and they throw blood on the altar and they throw blood all over all the people. There's blood everywhere. And we're like, what's going on, right? Very foreign to us. We are very about things being sterile. Uh, you know, butcher places are far away. None of us have been to them or maybe very few of us. What's going on? And what's being described here is the sealing of this covenant. So in verse 6, you have the blood being thrown on the altar. So they sacrificed all of these animals, and then the, the, half of the blood is thrown against the altar. Okay, then verse 7, notice what's in the middle here. In the middle here, 
is the reading of the book of the covenant, the conditions, the, what, what the people are pledging to obey, their obligations, right? And then verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 8, the, blood is th- the other half of the blood seems to be thrown on the people. Okay, so you have blood thrown on the altar, all the conditions and obligations, and then blood thrown onto the people, okay? Now, here's, here, there's a couple things that may be going on here. Clearly, there's some symbolism involved, right? And that's what we want to key in on. On the one hand, this may be some purification going on, a, a sense that the people were being purified from their sins so that they were ready to enter into this covenant relationship. Okay, that, that's one possibility and, and potentially part of what's going on. But I think there's more here. I think what we see here parallels what we see in other covenant ratification ceremonies. Uh, it's a little bit similar to what we see in Genesis 15, where we see a, gen- a, a covenant ratification ceremony with Abraham. In that case, God's entering into this covenant with Abraham, and he ca- calls on Abraham to cut these animals in pieces, and then God, God, the glory of God's presence w- goes through the middle of these pieces. And what's being communicated there is, whoever breaks the covenant, whichever party in the covenant breaks the covenant, the curse for breaking it is to be cut in half like these animals, okay? I think that's some of what's going on here. Half of the blood is thrown on the altar, I think representing God, okay, one party in the covenant. The other half is thrown on the people, the other portion of the people represented in the covenant, right? And in between those two things, blood being thrown on the altar representing God and blood being thrown on the people, the two parties in the covenant, in between are the conditions the obligations in the covenant, okay? What's being said there? What's being said is whoever breaks this covenant is to die. One commentator said this, the spattered blood symbolized the death of the covenant makers should they become covenant breakers. Now, in light of what we saw earlier, this puts the Israelites in a rather precarious position, doesn't it? We've already seen that they were far too overconfident, that they were far more sinful than they realized. And yet here they are entering into this covenant, and the the penalty, the consequence, the curse for breaking this covenant is what? It's death. It's death. Yet even within this ceremony, there is a solution. Notice In the ceremony, there's an animal that dies, whose blood is shed instead of the covenant parties. It's a clue that the Israelites are going to need more sacrifices, and there will be more sacrifices, bulls and goats and lambs who will die to purify them and make atonement for their sins and their failures to keep the covenant. In fact, that ends up being built into the covenant, right? There are lots of regulations and laws that we're going to see that have to do with sacrifices. Why? Because the Israelites wouldn't keep that covenant perfectly. They would fail at it, so they would need the sacrifices of atonement that would pay for their sins and failures to keep the covenant. Yet the truth is, as the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And that's where this covenant begins to fail. Blood and bulls and goats can never take away sin. No priest can live forever, keep 
to keep offering sin. We needed a priest who could live forever. We needed a a sacrifice who would be the once-for-all sacrifice that could actually take away sin. And guess what? That's what we have in the new covenant in Christ. We have a better covenant, a covenant sealed with blood, with the blood of Christ. Because only the blood of Jesus Christ can actually purify us. Only His death can absorb the curses we are under for our failure to keep the covenant. You can go read more in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, but what we find there in Hebrews 9 and 10 is that Jesus is a better high priest, a better sacrifice for a better covenant. As Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, the curse for breaking the law, covenant, by becoming accursed for us. He keeps the conditions we could not keep. You see, some of us are still trying to establish and live out our relationship with God under some form of the old covenant. We still act like we're in the old covenant, where we have to be good enough and keep enough commands in order to have a relationship with God or in order to keep that relationship with God or we will lose it completely and come under the curse. Let's be honest. Do you have moments when you fear that God will punish you? When you fear that you've sinned too much and He's going to bring down His wrath if that's you, that, that's a form of living under the old covenant, of living where you, you are going to receive curses based on whether you keep the law enough. Now, this is not to say that our sin as believers doesn't have an impact on our relationship with God. It affects our fellowship with God, but it never affects our position and ultimately the way God views us and relates to us. If you're still trying to establish your relationship with God through the law, I want to invite you to surrender and give it up. You see, that's why we need to realize we're more sinful than, than we ever thought, right? Only then when we realize, oh, I'm really that bad, then we give up, right? Most of us have too high a view of ourselves, and so we think, we, oh, it's, it, we have to be good enough for God? I, I think I could do that. And, and part of what we're needing to see here is, no, no, you can't. Stop trying. Give up and ask for help. Ask for Jesus to cover your sin, to fulfill the conditions for you, and be your high priest, and your sacrifice will bring you into a relationship with God that cannot be broken. Look to the crucified and risen Lord. It's in Him and in His new covenant that we can live in relationship with the living God. Number four now, covenant communion. Covenant communion. Look with me at chapter 24, verse 9. It says, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. 
There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. It's a remarkable little vignette here. Like, uh, what happens here really, really should catch our attention. It should kind of blow our minds. And, and then there's a couple reasons why this is remarkable. For one, it's remarkable because they saw the God of Israel. This is interesting because there's another place where, where God tells Moses, no man can see my face and live. And so what's going on here? What do they see? And what's more, we know that God is a spirit, so, so he doesn't have a visible form. And, and so, so you get, there's some interesting questions here, right? And I think what we can say is that they saw something of the glory of God represented in some sort of physical way, that they were able to see it. Something we notice in similar encounters. You think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, there's Ezekiel seeing the glory of God, or uh, uh, John in, in, in Revelation. You see these instances where they encounter the glory of God, and there, there's some sort of visible representation of God's glory. They saw Him. They saw His, they saw his perhaps not in His fullness, but they saw something of His glory. It's interesting that they note the feet of God, right? Did you notice that? There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, right? It, it, one commentator noted that this may be because they were on their face the whole time. The only thing they saw was kind of his feet and under his feet, right? But their experience and what they note even and what they do describe mirrors much of what we find in those other instances in Scripture. There is mystery, there's glory, there's brilliance and splendor in these encounters with God. There is so much mystery, glory beyond our comprehension in God Himself. So the very fact that they see the God of Israel is remarkable. The second remarkable thing about this is that they didn't die. And this is noted in nearly every encounter that someone has with the living God in Scripture. It's, oh, they didn't die, right? And you're like, well, that, you know, most people you meet, you don't die. Is that, should that be surprising? And the answer is yes, it should be surprising that they, should, they didn't die, right? It says God did not lay a hand on them. And the implication is that they probably deserve for him to lay a hand on them. And, and by laying a hand, it wasn't like, I'm going to pat you on the shoulder. No, the, the idea was they would die. Because in the presence of an infinitely holy, perfect glorious God, finite sinful man deserves to die. And so it is God's grace, they have a taste of God's grace in that they do not die when they are in His presence. You might remember Isaiah where he says, woe to me, I'm a sinful man, of unclean, I'm an unclean man of unclean lips, right? What does woe mean? Well, woe means I'm cursed, I'm, I'm a dead man, I'm under God's curse right now because I'm a sinful man in His presence. And, and it's a similar thing here. On our own, sinful men cannot live in God's presence. The third remarkable thing in these verses is the intimacy and relationship and fellowship described here. Do you notice what it said there? They ate, they beheld God, the end of verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. They enjoyed a meal with God. To eat a meal with somebody speaks of 
fellowship, of friendship, of relationship, especially in the ancient world. But even today, I think, who have you had into your home for a meal? Usually it's somebody that you know and love, you want to share life with, or at least you want to try to begin to share life with, right? And so you open your home, and you have them at your table, and you invite them for a meal, and you serve them, and you laugh, and you talk, and you, you share life together. That is what God's doing with these men here. He's welcoming them into His presence, into fellowship, into friendship with Him. That should astonish us. Remember, weak, sinful, finite men being welcomed to a meal by the living, holy, glorious, infinite God. What we see here is actually a shadow, a pointer to what we are participating in today. Do you remember Jesus' words at the Last Supper? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see that kind of echoed in this passage at the end of verse 7? I'm sorry, not the end of verse 7. Sorry, verse 8. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And Jesus institutes the new covenant. He said, Behold, says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And his blood brings us near to eat a meal, to feast with, to enjoy fellowship and intimacy and friendship and relationship with God in a new and better covenant. So if you are in Christ, here's what you need to recognize today. You have been welcomed to the table permanently. You get to live in the presence of and enjoy a relationship with your Lord. Your sins are covered and washed away. You are forgiven. The conditions have been kept. The curses have been born by another, and you are welcomed to a meal. You get to enjoy fellowship with your God. That's what we're tasting of and enjoying together in the presence of God this, today in the Lord's Supper. Would someone grab me a set of the elements? Peter, maybe you can. I forgot to bring one up. But if you are not a Christian, 